Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. There is no doubt that on a global level, the most famous Sufi in the world, or the person that most people associate with Sufism, is the Persian mystic and poet Jalal ad-Din Rumi. His poetry has been translated into numerous languages, and he has been one of the best-selling poets in all of North America and Europe, even 800 years after he lived. His verses include themes of love and heartbreak, um, entertaining stories and profound insights that touch people worldwide even today. At the same time, Rumi is also a greatly misunderstood figure. Many people know that he was a so-called Sufi, that he belonged to the tradition known as Sufism. And this is true, but what does this actually mean? Fewer still are aware of the fact that he was a devoted Muslim whose poetry is infused with and can really only be properly understood through the um, context of his Islamic intellectual framework. A lot of the poetry of Rumi that has become so famous through you know, quotes on Instagram posts or all over the internet are often based on questionable translations that will remove all of the Islamic context and Islamic references in his poetry. And a lot of the quotes that we see on, on, on the internet are also just outright false. They're not by Rumi at all. But that isn't to say that Rumi doesn't have universal appeal, which he certainly does. His works are incredibly beautiful, regardless of your background. But we do ourselves a disservice when we neglect to understand the actual context in which he writes, the symbolism that he uses, and what his colorful words are actually pointing to on a broader level. 
Rumi is one of the most popular and influential Sufi writers in history, even in the Islamic world. So let's take a few minutes to try to get to know this giant of mystical and Persian literature. Who was Rumi really? Um, what was the historical context in which he lived and worked? And how can we get a better and more nuanced understanding of his uh, philosophy and his, his worldview so that we can better appreciate the literary masterpieces that he composed? Jalal ad-Din Muhammad al-Balkhi was born in the year 1207 in the region known as Khorasan. His nisbah, or the title, al-Balkhi, seems to indicate that he was from the city of Balkh in particular. And while it is true that his father and family had a connection with the city of Balkh, it seems possible that Rumi himself was born and spent his first years in a city called Vakhsh in modern Tajikistan, where his parents resided for a couple of years. This region was part of the larger Persianate cultural sphere, and Rumi and his family thus spoke Persian as their native language and took part in that cultural context, you could say. His father, Baha Adin Valad, was a religious scholar of relative renown and seems to have worked essentially as a preacher and teacher of some of the religious sciences such as fiqh or Islamic jurisprudence. Baha Adin and his family followed the Hanafi school of Islamic law, a tradition that his son Rumi would also inherit later on. This, together with the Shafi'i school, were the most prominent in this region at the time, and the Hanafi school is today the largest of all the four major schools, as well as often being considered the most quote-unquote liberal. From his surviving writings, such as the Ma'arif, as well as from secondary accounts, it also becomes clear that Baha'uddin was a mystic, involved with Sufism and having ecstatic visionary experiences of the divine. And on account of both of these aspects of his career, being a teacher of exoteric sciences, but also a Sufi sheikh of sorts, he had a modest group of followers or students that often accompanied him. This already shows that one common narrative about Rumi's life is not entirely accurate. It's often claimed that Rumi was an entirely um, exoterically oriented, formalistic Muslim scholar until he met Shams the Tabrizi, after which point he becomes an ecstatic mystic, like a complete 180 turnaround. This was not the case. Rumi was very much uh, aware of mysticism and Sufism. It was all around him as he grew up. His father was a mystic. All the kind of people around him were Sufis and mystics. He would have been deeply immersed, uh, at least on a surface level, that, that doesn't make sense. He would have been deeply involved or deeply aware of the Sufi tradition as it was all around him, even in his own family. Um, so this is important to remember, already one of those common misconceptions about Rumi that we have to dispel. In any case, the family, including the young Jalal ad-Din, seems to have eventually moved to Samarkand, where Baha ad-Din ran into some trouble as he would criticize and kind of get into a beef with the ruling elite for being morally and religiously corrupt. And only a few years later, they made another and even more significant move, this time leaving the East for good. Probably around the year 1217, when Jalal ad-Din would have been around 10 years old, they left Samarkand and Khorasan to travel to the west and never to return. There are various theories and accounts as to why they made this sudden move. A popular version is that Baha ad-Din and his family saw the looming threat of the Mongol armies that were getting closer and closer and chose to leave before that would become an issue. This is possible, but the Mongol invasion was still a few years away, and it would have been hard to know beforehand that such an invasion was in fact going to happen. 
So another theory is that Baha ad-Din's increasingly bad relationship with the ruling Khwarezm Shah dynasty actually forced him to leave due to these political um, circumstances. It's hard to say exactly what happened, but what we do know for sure is that Baha ad-Din, parts of his family, including Jalal ad-Din, and a group of followers did indeed leave the region to travel to the Islamic heartlands in the west. They visited Baghdad for a while, they went on a pilgrimage to Mecca to perform the, the Hajj, one of the pillars of the Islamic religion, they might have stayed in Syria for a while, and even settled for a couple of years in a city called Larende from around the year 1221. It's here that Jalal ad-Din came of age, got married, and had his first children, including Sultan Valad, who would take over after his father's death and was instrumental in the founding of the Mevlevi order. But it was in another place that the family, and of course Rumi, would find their permanent home when, possibly on the invitation of the Seljuk ruler, Alaeddin Kaikobad, they moved to the city of Konya, in what is today Turkey. This is possibly in the year 1228. This was a good place to be, being a major political and cultural center of the Seljuk Empire, and it allowed Baha ad-Din to establish himself as a pretty prominent religious authority and teacher. Now, when we read the hagiographies about Rumi and his life, his father, Baha ad-Din, is portrayed as a world-renowned religious scholar, the, quote, king of the ulama, who was sought by people from all over the Islamic world for his expertise in questions of Hanafi law, among other things. The historical record does not really support this idea, though, and is likely an exaggeration after the fact. He was a religious authority, to be sure, he had a group of followers, and he managed to become quite popular and relatively prominent in Konya in the last years of his life, but probably nowhere near the kind of portrayal and renown that we find in the hagiographies. He taught in a prominent madrasa in Konya and had the authority to issue fatwas, or legal opinions on matters of law and religion. But one of the reasons that they settled in Konya, rather than in one of the more major cities associated with Islamic scholarship, such as Baghdad, Damascus, and Cairo, is probably that he couldn't really get any employment there. This would have required a much more accomplished and established renowned person. Konya, on the other hand, was more on the borders of the Islamic Empire. It was a significant center of the Seljuk Empire, but nothing like Baghdad in terms of scholarship. Anatolia was a place that had recently been conquered, and much of the population were either still non-Muslims altogether, or recently converted Muslims that didn't know much about the details of its practices and ideas. This, in other words, was a great place for someone like Baha ad-Din to be in order to teach religion in a place where the demand was high, especially since he was also a mystic and incorporated the Sufi aspects into his religious teaching and preaching, something that was rather popular and sought after in that region at the time. As we all know, this would also be a good place for his son to, only a few years later, become an even more prominent scholar and, and, and figure than his father ever was. And it is indeed because of his association with, with Konya and in this larger region that Rumi is known as Rumi. In the Islamic world, he was either known as uh, Jalal ad-Din al-Balkhi, right? Jalal ad-Din from Balkh, this, this region that he was from originally, or simply as Maulana, which means our master, Mevlana in Turkish. Uh, there is some early references to him being given the, the name, uh, or being referred to by the name Maulana Rumi. And why is this? Where does this name come from? Uh, because it does have its origins in the Islamic tradition and, and, and in the Mevlevi order that followed him, even though it wasn't as common as it is, is today. 
uh, and it is essentially because he was associated with this region, Konya and Anatolia. This region was known as Rum, which means Rome, basically, because this place had been ruled by the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. So this was considered uh, the, the you know part of the wider region of Rome or Rum. So Jalaladin Rumi essentially means Jalaladin the Roman, right? Or the one from Rome or from Rome, which is really interesting. Bahaadin Valad, the father of Jalaladin Rumi, unfortunately passed away only about two years after they arrived in Konya, either in 1230 or 1231. Rumi himself would have been around 25 years old at this point, and while apparently already a respected teacher and, and preacher of sorts, he was not old enough to take over all of his father's previous responsibilities. But just in time, one of Baha'uddin's older close students from the Balkh region arrived in Konya. This was Burhan ad-Din Muhaqqiq, at this point an ecstatic Sufi master and family friend who took Jalal ad-Din under his wing. For the remainder of Burhan ad-Din's life, Rumi would remain his student and considered him his sheikh. Burhan ad-Din first sent Rumi to Syria to properly study the exoteric religious sciences like law and theology with renowned teachers there. Rumi would spend the majority of the 1230s in Syria in places like Aleppo and Damascus, a place that of course had many significant figures, both scholars and mystics, living there at the time. Once he returned to Konya, he was a significantly learned scholar, surpassing even his father in religious knowledge. And it was at this point that Burhan ad-Din started to teach Rumi the mystical Sufi path. Again, Rumi would have, of course, been surrounded by Sufism throughout his life since his father was a Sufi sheikh and he was in the know, so to say, in various ways. But it was under Burhan ad-Din that he started traveling on the Sufi path properly over a number of years, eventually becoming an accomplished master himself. He would go on several spiritual retreats, he would fast for long periods of time, and all the other practices associated with Sufi training. About a decade after he arrived, Burhan ad-Din eventually passed away around the year 1241. But at that point, Rumi's training was already complete, and he would thus start his career properly as an increasingly famous and renowned scholar and mystic. Rumi was an expert in Hanafi Islamic law, and he would give fatwas, or legal opinions, on different matters. He would also teach other students, and he gained a very favorable reputation. Combining an expertise in exoteric religious sciences, as well as his role as a Sufi master and sheikh, Rumi eventually surpassed his father in reputation and renown. Just like his father, he was a fantastic preacher and was very popular among the common people. Both himself and other people at the time agreed that Rumi was especially skilled at attracting people of different religious backgrounds, particularly Christians for some reason, and through his preaching and teaching he would often lead them to convert to Islam. In other words, Rumi was essentially on top of the world at this time. He was one of the most renowned and popular scholars in Konya, both as a, as a teacher of, of Islamic law and, and, and so on, and also as a Sufi sheikh and mystic who was known for performing miracles and, and all these self-negating uh, self and, and renunciate practices. Um, so again, this idea of Rumi as, as a totally exoteric you know, formalistic Muslim scholar that then suddenly turns into a mystic is not entirely accurate, but there is a point to be made that he was certainly at this time uh, a sort of public figure. 
someone who was known as a scholar, uh, a man of book learning and, 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 and worldly religious knowledge, so to say. But then, as most of us know, something happens. Something that would turn Jalal ad-Din from Balkh into Rumi, as we know him. That something was a man called Shams ad-Din At-Tabrizi, who arrived in Konya in November 1244 and would turn Rumi's life upside down. There are many different accounts of their first meeting, each one, of course, more dramatic than the next. Shams apparently settled in a local inn for rice sellers when he arrived in Konya, and an early account of their meeting takes place in a pavilion right outside this inn, as Rumi and his companions were passing by one day. In most accounts, Shams asks a question of Rumi, usually involving the famous early Sufi Bayazid al-Bistami. Shams himself, in his surviving writings called the Maqalat, described their meeting like this, quote, The first thing I spoke about with him was this. How is it that Abu Yazid did not need to follow the example of the Prophet and did not say, Glory be to thee, or we worship thee? And Rumi completely understood the full implications of the problem and where it came from and where it was leading to. It made him inebriated on account of his purity of spirit, for his spirit was pure and cleansed and it shone within him. I realized the sweetness of this question from his inebriation, though I had previously been unaware of its sweetness. In one of the more common versions, Shams uh, approaches Rumi as, as, as he is walking by, and he asks him a very um, interesting question, a very um, radical question, you could say. He says, who is the better mystic? Or who is the better sage, Abu Yazid al-Bistami or the Prophet Muhammad? Which obviously is a very loaded question, a very um, controversial question. Uh, and, 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 and of course, uh, consciously so. This is, this is the whole point. Uh, probably Rumi's students or followers, the ones around him, would have been shocked by this question. But Rumi is intrigued and he, he actually answers the question. He says... He says that the Prophet Muhammad is, is the superior uh, mystic or the superior uh, man. Uh, Shams then replies back and he says, How come then that Abu Yazid al-Bistami exclaimed Subhani, right, this famous ecstatic utterance uh, by Bistami, which means glory be to me. He said to have said this in a, in a sort of ecstatic moment of, of annihilation in God. He said, Subhani, glory be to me. How come Bistami says that, whereas Muhammad um, says glory be to thee? He speaks of God in, in second person. Uh, so how come then Muhammad is the superior person? And then which is a good point, of course, Rumi then answers something to the effect that Bistami was in fact limited in his understanding and had uh, misconstrued that limit as having actually reached God, whereas Muhammad, who um, had gone much further on the path, had realized that this journey and this, this, this way to God was, was eternal and much longer, and thus he sp spoke about God in a, in a different way. Uh, with in the second person rather than the first person. So this is a higher station than Bistami. It's a really fascinating encounter, and it, it, it had an incredibly strong impact on both Rumi and Shams. It becomes the starting point for a very significant and long spiritual relationship. 
Indeed, in some ways, this meeting between Rumi and Shams is one of the most significant moments in religious and literary history, as two spiritual giants meet for the first time and begin a relationship that would lead to some of the greatest poetry in history, as well as of course having major effects on the future of not only Sufism and Islam, but the entire Islamic world and beyond. This is one of the great love stories of the world. Not necessarily romantic or physical love, but a spiritual one. Rumi and Shams are inseparable from this moment on. Some reports say that they would shut themselves into a room for weeks or months in deep spiritual discussion. Rumi goes from being a public scholar and teacher to a kind of recluse. From a man of books and conceptual learning to an ecstatic and intoxicated mystic. Rumi is reported by Shams to have said, quote, since I have become acquainted with you, these books have become lifeless in my eyes. It is after the arrival of Shams that Rumi discovers the power of music as a spiritual practice, in the form known as Sama, a Sufi practice that stemmed back many centuries. Shams, Rumi, and his disciples would hold such rituals of audition regularly, and it became a significant aspect of his mysticism. Rumi's love for music as a spiritual practice is widely known and famous, and he would often move to the music in a kind of whirling and meditative motion, it is often said. He would spin around with his arms extended. The scholar Franklin D. Lewis says, quote, Sama was an activity for the true men of God, which liberated Rumi from the austere ways of self-renunciation and gave him a joyous vehicle for expressing his mystical rapture. It even seems that Rumi was himself a musician, and that he played the rabab, a string instrument that is played with a bow that still survives today, actually. He mentions the rabab in many of his poems in a loving way, and his son, Sultan Balad, even wrote a poem called the Rabab Nameh, which mirrors Rumi's own uh, Neynameh, the song of the reed, in a really interesting kind of way. And this love of music and the particular kind of sama and dance that Rumi, Shams, and the disciples would perform was to have a great effect on the Mevlevi order later on too. It is also in this period that Rumi, very significantly, starts to compose poetry for the first time. In many ways, the reason Rumi wrote poetry was to relay the teachings of Shams. As we saw earlier, Rumi was exceptionally skilled at communicating with the common people, whereas Shem's ecstatic teachings were hard for people to grasp. So Rumi saw his mission as one where he would use those oratory and literary skills to convey the truths of Shem's, to be the moon that reflected the light of the sun, so to say. Rumi says in a poem, quote, Shamsi Tabriz, through your sun we shine just like the moon. This all being a pun on the fact that the name Shams in Arabic literally means sun. Shams himself says, quote, This Maulana is like moonlight. The eye cannot take in the sun of my being, but it can take in the moon. The extreme brightness of the rays make the eye unable to tolerate the sun. The moon cannot reach the sun unless the sun reaches out to the moon. Indeed, the great divan of Rumi, or his collection of poems, was given the title Divani Shems, or Divan of Shems the Tabrizi, that is, the Divan of Shems, as the whole work is dedicated to this master and often takes on his poetic persona. The relationship between Rumi and Shems is really unique and interesting. In many ways, Rumi took on Shems as his master, a sheikh who guided him to full absorption in God and to the utmost stations of the mystical path. 
but at the same time, Rumi was already himself a Sufi master when the two met, and Shams seems to have also learned a lot from Rumi. So, in other words, they were kind of some kind of spiritual companions of a sort, who lifted each other up to the heights of spiritual attainment. Quote, My thoughts and reflections inspired by you, as though I were your phrases and expression. But who was this Shams that had such a great impact on Rumi? As his name suggests, he was from the city of Tabriz, in what is today Iran. But up until a few decades ago, this was basically all that we knew. Um, all the, uh, the information we have are from the writings of Rumi and his disciples, which basically limits us to the period after his arrival in Konya. And we knew very little about uh, his life and who he was before that. That is, until only a few decades ago, when the actual writings of Shams was discovered. Which, of course, gives us a much broader and better picture of who he was. Now, the common narrative of Shams, uh, even today, with all, all this information, is that he was some sort of just wandering dervish. Which he was, of course, but in, in the sense that he was sort of illiterate, um, just this, this, this kalandar sort of dervish that walked around with, with nothing but a prayer mat and a flute and, and was possibly illiterate and, and had reached illumination by some sort of inspiration and experience. Um, but when we read his actual works, it becomes clear that while this vision isn't entirely wrong, it's not the whole picture either. Because Shams uh, seems to have been a rather well-educated man. Just like Rumi, he would have studied the Islamic sciences, he was an expert in Islamic law, although in this case he was a Shafi'i rather than a Hanafi like Rumi, but still he would have studied um, deeply the religious sciences of Islam and literature. He, he knew the classical Sufi literature, which might explain why he knew so well the story of Bistami, for example. Um, so Shams was certainly a highly educated man. While he was from Tabriz originally, he seems to have early on traveled all around the Islamic world looking for a teacher that could sort of match his own uh, spiritual attainments and, and sort of prove himself worthy of being his master, which he could never really find, it seems. Uh, he seems to have spent a significant amount of time in Damascus in Syria, where he also met and spent time with uh, Sufis, you know, Sufi masters and mystics, um, including a guy that he refers to as Sheikh Muhammad who might actually be the famous Ibn Arabi, although it's not entirely certain, but it seems, uh, at least in my opinion, it seems pretty clear that he is referring to Ibn Arabi. And he often praises and, and, and talks about these masters in a very sort of loving and, 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 and appreciative way, but none of them could truly sort of match him and live up to his high uh, requirements and expectations. Um, that is, of course, until he arrives in Konya and meets Rumi, who who sort of makes all his dreams and, and wishes come true. They had a very close relationship for the short time that Shams was in Konya. But all things weren't well. Indeed, many of Rumi's followers developed a strong jealousy over the fact that Shams was given such a high status, basically making Rumi neglect his public role as a teacher and spending time with them. On top of this, Shams appeared to them to be just some poor dervish without nearly the scholarly prowess of their master. How could he possibly deserve all this praise and treatment? And many of the disciples seem to have made these feelings known. Some accounts even state that they might have straight up threatened Shams with violence if he didn't leave. 
whatever the reason, one day Shams is suddenly gone. He had left Konya behind, throwing Rumi into complete despair. He stopped composing poetry, he became an even more reclusive person than before, and was generally just very distraught. His followers realized that things had pretty much backfired. Instead of bringing their master back to them, the disappearance of Shams only made things worse. Eventually, they got word that Shams had gone to Damascus, and Rumi sent his son, Sultan Valad, on a mission to retrieve him, which he did. Shams once again returns to Konya, things are much better this time, they celebrate by holding Sama sessions, and Rumi once again composes poetry. But all things must pass, as they say, and only about a year later, Shams disappears once again, but this time for good. Rumi sends several missions to find him in Syria and other places, but no one could find a single trace of him. Eventually, Rumi had to give up and realize that his son was gone, and that he now had to find that light within himself instead of in an external person. His spiritual training was, in a way, finally complete. There are many different accounts about what happened to Shems. Uh, one famous example, told in the, in the Chronicle of Afleki, for example, states that the followers of Rumi became jealous once again, and that this time they went so far as to actually murder Shems. Um, in some accounts, it's even stated that one of Rumi's own sons, Allah ad-Din, was a key figure in this plot to murder Shems. Another version, however, is less dramatic. Shams seems to have expressed a desire to leave shortly before disappearing. A key aspect of the Sufi path is when the student has to leave the sheikh or master behind and complete his training on his own. In this case, though, Rumi couldn't really leave because he had so many responsibilities as a teacher in Konya. So Shams might have decided to instead leave Rumi as the last part of his teaching. We really don't know what happened to Shams. Some claim that he went back to Tabriz and that he died there a few years later. Um, there is actually a claim or a place, um, it's claimed that he died in a place called Khoi in Iran. And there's actually a kind of mausoleum or a, or a supposed burial place and a tomb for Shams there. Uh, on the other hand, there's also some that claim that Shams' body actually lies in Konya because you know, following this idea that he was murdered, uh, it is said that, that the, uh, the murderers threw Shams' body into a well in Konya and that his body is still there. There's a, I believe there's a kind of even a kind of monument where his body might be. So there are disagreements about what happened to, to, to Shams. Uh, at the end of the day, we simply don't know. It's a mystery and we will probably never know for sure. What we do know for sure, though, is the incredible impact that Shams had on Rumi. From the time of, of Shams' uh, disappearance in 1247 or 1248, Rumi would sort of really come into his own. He would take on this role as, as the incredibly uh, powerful uh, mystic that he is known for today. Shams had turned him from a mystically-oriented scholar to an ecstatic lover. His following in Konya, the proto-Mevlevis in other words, grew to a significant size and he would have he had incredible power even on a kind of semi-political level. It's also after this final disappearance of Shams that Rumi composes the majority of the poetry that we all know and love. To the wider world, Rumi is of course famous as one of the greatest love poets in history and his verse is undeniably magnificent. He was greatly influenced by earlier Persian Sufi poets, such as uh, Sana'i and Fariduddin Attar, the author of the famous Conference of the Birds. 
Indeed, there is even a famous story that Rumi met Attar as a young boy when he and his father were traveling west from Balkh, but this is most likely more of a legendary story than historical fact. In any case, Rumi's literary output is very impressive, not only taking inspiration from these earlier poets, but also being very original and unique himself. He truly had a remarkable skill at conveying the sometimes complex teachings of Islam and Sufism to a general audience, and his words are able to touch people regardless of their cultural or religious background. This was a very useful skill in Konya at the time, with a large non-Muslim population as well as recent converts with limited knowledge of the religion. Even during his own lifetime, Rumi was not just popular and renowned among his fellow Muslims, but also by Christians and Jews living in the region at the time. In terms of his poetry, there are two major works to consider. The first is his Divan, or Diwan, that, that we've already mentioned before, going on to titles like the uh, Divani Shems, uh, the Divan of Shams at Tabrizi, or the Divani Kabir, the Great Divan. Now, a uh, Diwan, or Divan in Persian, isn't necessarily a coherent work per se, but it's a full collection of poetry. In other words, this is a work that contains all or most of Rumi's individual poems in various styles and forms. As the title suggests, the work as a whole is dedicated to Shems, and many of the poems either take on the poetic persona and voice of Shems, or are dedicated to praising or talking about this master, often in an even surprisingly devotional tone. Just listen to this, quote, You are my sky, I am the earth, dumbfounded. What things you sprout from my heart each moment. I am parched earth, rain down on me drops of grace, for your water makes the earth grow rosy. What does the earth know what you sow in it? You made it pregnant, you know what it bears, every atom pregnant with your mysteries. You make it writhe awhile in pangs of birth, what marvels writhe to birth through the world womb. And I am God, the call glory to me. The Divan contains over 5,000 poems and 44,000 verses. About 3,000 of them are so-called ghazals, a popular form of poetry in Persian, and another 2,000 are rubayat, or quatrains. Then there are also a few uh, qasidas and other poetic genres. The language also varies, with the vast majority of the poems, of course, being in Persian, but a few are in Arabic, and there are even some instances of Turkish and Greek. Needless to say, this is an incredible collection, containing some of the most famous lines of poetry in history. It deals with all kinds of topics, but some more central themes, such as, for example, love. Love is one of the key concepts for Rumi, and it isn't for nothing that he is seen as such a great love poet. But this love is more complex than many might imagine. Primarily, when Rumi talks about love, he is talking about love of God and the love that exists between God and creation, a love that is the thread that keeps the cosmos together and which pulls the mystic towards his God and toward the essential unity of reality. Now, that isn't to say that worldly love, such as love between spouses, is irrelevant to this poetry. Poets like Rumi don't make a clear distinction between metaphysical or divine love and human love. It's all the same love. Human love becomes like a manifestation or expression of the more universal divine love that is at the core of his message. 
So his poetry can often be read in different ways and on different levels of meaning, all of which are often true at the same time, which is what makes his poetry so accessible. But the second major poetic work, and probably the one that is the most renowned worldwide, is a more coherent and unified one. It's an epic narrative poem called the Masnavi e Ma'anavi, often known under the shorter title the Masnavi. The full title means something like spiritual couplets, the word Masnavi simply being the name of the particular poetic style or form that it's written in, which is known as Masnavi or Mathnawi in Arabic. And this is essentially just rhyming couplets. It's the same poetic form that Attar's Conference of the Birds was written in, among many other famous poems at the time. But it goes to show just how influential and loved Rumi's poem is that it is universally known as the Masnavi. Indeed, this work has been so celebrated in the Muslim world to the point that it has even been called the Qur'an in Persian. And it is in some ways a commentary on the Qur'an, or on the general teachings of Islam as understood through Rumi's Sufism. It deals with all kinds of religious and spiritual topics, from law to theology and spiritual practice, but through accessible poetry in the form of stories, fables, and many other fascinating and entertaining, yet of course profound, narratives and sections. The Masnavi was composed sometime during the last ten or so years of Rumi's life, from around 1260 to 1273. It was composed at the request of Rumi's, at the time, senior disciple and successor, Hossam ad-Din Chelebi, who was also present during the actual composing itself. Rumi and Hossam ad-Din would sit together. Rumi would recite the poetry, and Hossam ad-Din would write it down, and then would read it back to him. For many years this process went on, which isn't surprising when you consider the length of the work. The Masnavi consists of six books with about 25,000 verses, a truly epic poem and possibly one of the greatest literary achievements in history. But like we said, Rumi was not just a poet, but also a famous and loved preacher. And there are prose works attributed to him as well. In particular, there is a work entitled the Fihi Ma Fihi, which essentially means something like in it what is in it. And this is a collection of sermons or discourses of Rumi, delivered to his students and then written down. While not as famous as his poetry, this is still a very significant work and features important details about his teachings and biography in a more straightforward prose form. We can tell just from reading these discourses, even in translation, that he must have been quite a compelling speaker. But what are all those teachings that he conveyed in his poetry? What is the philosophy of Rumi, the um, teachings and wisdoms that we find in works like the Divan or in the Masnavi, and which have captivated so many people worldwide? In many ways, Rumi represents a certain flavor of Sufism that emphasizes a particular concept, that of love. We already talked about this a bit earlier, but love is indeed one of the most recurring and important themes in the poetry and the practice of Islam that he represents. This love, as we saw, is both on a practical, mystical, and even metaphysical level. He was a Sufi, and so his focus is on many of those common and familiar Sufi themes that we have explored in earlier episodes. The Sufi path is one of ascending stations where you are guided by a sheikh or master on gradually higher levels of intimacy with God. 
Eventually, on the highest level, the mystic reaches what is known as fana, or fanafilah, annihilation in God, where the person becomes completely effaced in the reality of the divine and experiences the true oneness of reality, or of God. This is what is sought by the Sufi and is described in so many of the poems. Quote, You are your own shadow, become annihilated in the rays of the sun. How long will you look at your shadow? Look also at his light. Or, quote, the world is snow and ice, and thou art the burning summer. No trace of it remains, O king, when thy traces appear. The realization of this oneness and a direct experience of God is essentially hindered by a single thing, the nafs, often translated as ego or self. It is our idea and attachment to the idea of a separate individual self and all the cravings and wants that results from that self that keeps us from experiencing God and of uniting with God, or rather of realizing that essential oneness that is there all along. This idea of the nafs and the path to fight against and annihilate it is a key theme in Rumi. He even identifies the nafs with Iblis, or the devil, and even with hell itself. In his discourses, Rumi explains it like this, quote, With God, there is no room for two egos. You say I, and he says I. In order for this duality to disappear, either you must die for him, or he for you. It is not possible, however, for him to die, either phenomenally or conceptually, because he is the ever-living who dieth not. He is so gracious, however, that if it were possible, he would die for you in order that the duality might disappear. Since it is not possible for him to die, you must die that he may be manifested to you, thus eliminating the duality. The whole process of the Sufi path, the fasting, retreats, renunciation, vikr, and listening to music, is to transcend the self or ego, the nafs. Over the course of the spiritual journey, the nafs is gradually burnt away until nothing of it remains, and only then can God appear. True selfhood lies in the experience of no self, of being nothing at all. As he said, in the realm of the divine, in the realm of unity, there can be no duality, no you and I, but only the all-encompassing reality of the divine. Rumi himself refers to this burning of the self when he says, quote, Three short phrases tell the story of my life. I was raw. I got cooked. I burned. Speaking about this transcending of duality, he also says, quote, From the beginning, when I heard the story of being in love, I wore up my soul, heart, and eyes in its path. I said, Perhaps the lover and beloved are too. But both were one, and I was seeing double. According to the Qur'an and Islamic theology, we were once united in pre-existence, before God's existentiating command, after which multiplicity and the phenomenal world appeared. Thus we have become separated from God, snatched away from that original state of unity, which is the cause of all our suffering. Or rather, it is our ideas and attachment to the false idea of an independent self that causes trouble. And once we're able to transcend that self, to forget it completely, we can find the essential oneness hiding underneath. It is precisely this theme that Rumi talks about in the opening lines to the massive Masnavi, a section that has become famous in its own right as the Song of the Reed, and could be argued to be the most famous section of Persian poetry in history. 
In these couplets, Rumi uses the image of the nay flute, a popular instrument in the Middle East and Central Asia, and its sorrowful wailing tones as a mirroring of the human cry of longing to be united once again with God. Just as the nay flute longs to return to the reed bed from which it came, the human longs to return to unity. To give you an idea of the beauty of this poetry, I think it's worthwhile to hear it in its original Persian so that we can experience the melody and rhyming. The Masnavi and the poetry of Rumi in general is very musical in nature, which really comes through in the original language. So here are the first 18 lines of the Masnavi, also known as the Song of the Reed, read by Safa Mirror with accompanying translation. <laughs> چون شکایت می کند از جدایی ها حکایت می کند که از نیستان تا مرا ببریدند در نفیرم مرد و زن نالیدند سینه خواهم شرح شرح از فراب تا بگویم شرح درد اشتیاب هر کسی کو دور ماند از اصل خیش باز جوید روزگار وسط خیش من به هر جمعیتی نالان شدم جفت بدحالان و خوشحالان شدم هر کسی از زن خود شد یار من از درون من نجست اسرار من سر من از ناله من دور نیست لیک چشم و گوش را آن نور نیست تن ز جان و جان ز تن مستور نیست لی کس را دید جان دستور نیست آتش است این بانگ نایود نیست باد هر که این آتش ندارد نیست باد آتش عشق است کن در می فتا جوشش عشق است کن در می فتا ای حریف هر که از یاری برید پرده هایش پرده های ما درید همچون نی زهری و تریاقی کدید همچون نی دمساز و مشتاقی کدید نی حدیث راه پرخون می کند قصه های عشق مجنون می کند محرم این هوش جز بیهوش نیست مرزبان را مشتری جز گوش نیست در غم ما روزها بیگاه شد روزها با سوزها همراه شد روزها گر رفت او را باک نیست تو بمان ای آن که چون تو پاک نیست هر که جز ماهی ز آبش سیر شد هر که بیروزیست روزش دیر شد در نیابد حال پخته هیچ خام پس سخن کوتاه باید و سلام A truly remarkable piece of literature that manages to encapsulate so many of the aspects of, of Sufi teachings and, and particularly the teachings of Rumi in a few short lines. Um, just as the nay is hollow on the inside to allow for the breath of the player to, to course through it, so the individual person must empty himself and become uh, hollow on the inside, become nothing, uh, become empty, become nothing, so that the 
uh, breath of God in this metaphor. The love of God can sort of course through the person and create music uh, equally as beautiful as the music of the Ney. It's really amazing imagery. Safa actually has a YouTube channel where she, among other things, does beautiful readings of Persian poetry, and I believe she's just about to do a, a series on the Song of the Reed in particular. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, you should check out that channel, and I will leave links to that in the description. In the last, 18th couplet, Rumi says that, quote, words must be cut short. And this is another important aspect of his thought, and that of Sufism in general. This knowledge and experience of God that Rumi is describing and the mystic seeks is not a knowledge that can be put into words or understood through concepts. In this sense, Rumi isn't interested in philosophy or the wisdoms that can be learned through books. That kind of knowledge, that is conceptual knowledge, often known as ilm in Arabic and also in Persian, is severely limited and can never give us true knowledge of God. Instead, the kind of knowledge a mystic like Rumi seeks is something else. It's something often called ma'arifa in the tradition, which is sometimes translated as Gnostic knowledge or mystical knowledge. This is not knowledge learned through words, but intuited or directly experienced through uh, what's known as kash, for literally unveiling. The veils of illusion, of independent self and all its acquired quote-unquote knowledge are ripped away to where nothing remains, and in that darkness of annihilation, one directly experiences the truth of oneness, a truth completely beyond words or concepts. Quote, O union with thee is the root of all joys, for these are all forms, but that is meaning. Or in the classic poem, quote, I am not me, you are not you, and you are not me. Yet I am me, you are you, and you are me as well. O idol of Chotan, with you I am such that I am in doubt whether I am you or you are me. In the Sufi tradition, another word is used to describe this kind of um, intuitive knowledge, which is dhawq, and this literally in Arabic means tasting. This is a really great uh, word because it, it sort of um, it, it sort of captures uh, the way that we can think of this kind of knowledge. So just as you can never truly know what something tastes like, say in another video I, I took the example of a piece of chocolate. Someone can describe chocolate to you all, you know, for, for all day, but you will never know truly what chocolate tastes like until you just put it in your mouth and taste it for yourself. And this is what marifa or this kind of mystical knowledge is like. You can never truly have this knowledge without experiencing it yourself. This is, that, that is the whole point. And that uh, central theme of love um, and, and love as knowledge is another great metaphor for this. Because just as this knowledge, this knowledge of God is, is something that cannot be described or really put into words, so when we, when we are in love and when we feel love, love is, is this kind of feeling, this, this, uh, this way of, of, of being that no one can really truly put into words. Right? It's an experience that is beyond ex expression and hu in human language in some way, but we all know love when we feel it. It's this obvious feeling that we all have, but it's really difficult to put into words. So that's why this idea of, of love also, as long, uh, along with, with like tasting, love is a really great metaphor uh, and sort of symbol for this kind of uh, mystical knowledge. It is love that burns away the nafs, the self. And there is love that gives us this true knowledge, which is identical to that love in a certain sense. Quote, The lover's sufferings like no other suffering, 
Love is the astrolabe of God's own mysteries. No matter whether love is of this world or of the next, it steals us to that world. Whatever words I say to explain this love, when I arrive at love, I am ashamed. Though language gives a clear account of love, yet love beyond all language is the clearer. The pen had gone at breakneck speed in writing, but when it came to love, it split in two. The explaining mind sleeps like an ass in mud, for love alone explains love and the lover. Love, for Rumi, also extends outward. To love God is to love God's creation. Love your fellow human beings, animals, and even plants. Rumi is described in the biographies as a remarkably kind and loving person, and to basically everyone. We even find Shams being a little concerned about just how nice Rumi was to everyone. But this was part of his essential worldview. When we read his works, Rumi comes across as a very, you could say, tolerant, uh, understanding and open-minded person, even towards those of other creeds within Islam and even other religions altogether. Quote, If you have lost heart in the path of love, flee to me without delay. I am a fortress invincible. But this also needs to be significantly nuanced. We have to remember that Rumi was a devout Muslim. He performed all the practices expected of a Muslim, such as the prayers and the fasting, etc. And he time and time again emphasizes the importance of doing these things and of following the Islamic law. As we saw, he was himself an expert and authority on Hanafi law, so this is hardly surprising. Even after he became a, an intoxicated, loving mystic, he was still an expert on Islamic law. He would still give out fatwas or legal opinions. People would come to him for, for answers to, to questions relating to Islamic law and, and belief. For sure, he saw Islam as the only fully true religion, the Quran as the last revelation to mankind, and Muhammad as the final prophet. He also followed Sunni Islam in particular and wrote critically about Shiism in some places. In other words, Rumi was Muslim. There is really no denying or even debating this question. Today, he has often been construed as some universalist mystic where religious adherence isn't important. This is simply a complete misrepresentation and oversimplification of his person and teachings, and is often supported by the many fake Rumi quotes that are spread out all over the internet. Rumi saw himself as a Muslim, and Islam was to him the one true religion to be followed. With that said, however, there is also no denying that he was what many today would refer to as tolerant of religious differences. He had a certain ecumenical approach to such questions, and seems to have stayed away from sectarianism as much as possible. This stems partly from Rumi's strong insistence on the inner spiritual meanings and truths behind all religious observances, the so-called ma'ana. He often criticizes other Muslims for getting too bogged down in the formalities and observances of rituals while forgetting or neglecting their inner meanings, which are the true purpose of religion. Outward practices are like a shell, and the inner meanings are the core. He uses a famous example here about the elephant standing in a dark room, an analogy that seems to come from India originally. Multiple people enter this dark room to figure out what the object is. One person touches the leg and says it's something like a tree. Another one grabs the trunk and says it's like a snake. A third one the stomach and says it's like a brick wall, for instance. All of the men are describing the same object, but their limited perspectives mean that they also get a, just a portion of the whole truth. Thus, their conception is somewhat distorted and colored by that particular perspective. 
Similarly, there is one truth of religion, which many different traditions describe in various ways, none of whom can fully see the elephant for what it is, but still describe it through their particular perspective. In some ways, each person has their own way to God, and it is the intention and inner state of the worshipper that is most important, without, of course, neglecting the outward aspect. Quote, For Hindis, Hindi is for praise of God. The praise of God in Sindhi is for Sindhis. I am not sanctified by their laudations. It's they who are made holy, strewing pearls. We look at neither languages nor words, but at the soul and at the inner state. Inspecting hearts, we see if they are humble, although the spoken words are not so humble. One of the best examples of this idea is in another story from the Masnavi about Moses and the shepherd, which this earlier quote is a section from. In this story, Moses is walking along and sees a shepherd in deep prayer and worship but he worships in a unique way. Quote, O Lord my God, where are you that I may become your servant, that I may sew your shoes and comb your hair, that I may wash your clothes and kill your lice and bring your milk to you, your eminence? Talking about God in such anthropomorphic ways is, of course, unacceptable to Moses, who harshly scolds the shepherd for his behavior. Quote, You've sunk a long way down. No Muslim you. You've turned into a heathen. What piffle is this? What blasphemy and guff? Go stuff some cotton wool into your mouth. The shepherd is ashamed. He apologizes and disappears into the desert. But at this point, God speaks to Moses and explains that it is he who has acted unjustly. Although the prayers of the shepherd were flawed because of anthropomorphism, by scolding him, Moses had only taken him further away from God, creating separation instead of union. Quote, you have repelled from us our loyal servant. Did you come to create a sense of union, or did you come to generate division? Do not touch separation if you can. For me, the worst of all things is divorce. I have consigned a way for everyone, to everyone a different idiom. For him it's praise, for you disparagement. For him it's honey, for you it's poison. Love of God with flawed outer practice is better than no worship or love at all. Moses is ashamed and returns to the shepherd, who turns out to be actually doing great, having learned from the experience, becoming inspired in his despair to go beyond all these dualities and find annihilation himself. This story really encapsulates this central aspect of Rumi's teaching, that it is love that is at the center of worship and of reality. It is love and the state of the heart that binds the human to God, and it is through love that we reach the divine, a love that is all-encompassing. Loving worship of God even comes before outer ritual practices. It is the goal that is prioritized, not the way there. Rumi, unlike many others in his day, isn't focused on the formalities of the law, but on the state of the soul and the heart. It is this that truly matters. In some ways, love even transcends religion and religious laws. We shouldn't misunderstand this to mean a rejection of the religious law, but rather that love is universal, and in a state of complete loving absorption in God and in union, one transcends all multiplicity, including religious divisions. Quote, The faith of love is separate from all others. For lovers, faith and piety are God. There are many religions and spiritual paths in the world, and Islam is the one that will fully lead to salvation according to Rumi, but for most, the goal is the same. God. Quote, Every saintly friend and prophet has a path, but all the paths that lead to God 
are one. Or, quote, beyond Kufr and Islam, there is a desert plain. In that middle space, our passions reign. When the Gnostic arrives there, he'll prostrate himself. Not Kufr, not Islam, nor is there any space in that domain. Ultimately, the world is a unity. Truth is one, regardless of sectarian divisions. It is human words and concepts that create division and conflict. Quote, Division in mankind is born of names. When names reach meaning, there is harmony. In such statements, we can clearly see someone who is disinterested in sectarian divisions. Um, although he was a Sunni Muslim and was devoted to that particular path, he also seems to state that beyond such outer conflicts and divisions, there is a singular truth, the truth of love and unity. Rumi calls on the listeners to come to that place of love, regardless of who they are. In one of the most famous and often quoted poems, quote, Come again, come again. Whatever you are, come again. If you're a kafir or idol worshipper, come again. This home of ours is not a home of hopelessness. Even if you've repented a hundred times, come again. In relation to some of these ideas, many have connected the thought of Rumi with that of his famous older contemporary, Ibn Arabi. And his doctrine, which later became known as Wahdat al-Wujud, or the unity of being. As we saw, it's quite likely that Rumi knew of Ibn Anabi and that he might have even met him when he lived in Damascus. Rumi was also friends with and lived in the same city as Ibn Anabi's chief disciple, Sadruddin Qunawi. But as scholars like William Chittick have convincingly argued, there is little reason to think that Ibn Anabi's ideas had any direct influence on Rumi. Although there are similarities, there are also many significant differences, as Rumi's writings lack many of the characteristic teachings and vocabulary of the school of Ibn Arabi. In terms of his metaphysics and philosophy, another one of the most central key themes for Rumi is the distinction he draws between form, surah, and meaning, ma'ana. The world that we experience, the world of multiplicity, is a kind of illusion. It's a dream, a veil over reality through forms that hide the meanings behind it. Most people only see the forms of the world, the surface-level foam on the ocean or the dust in the wind, and they never realize that all these forms are pointing to the hidden realities, or reality, behind it all. They are the outer manifestation of that hidden meaning. William Chiddick explains, quote, Ultimately, meaning is that thing as it is known to God himself. And since God is beyond any sort of multiplicity, in the last analysis, the meaning of all things is God. In other words, behind the illusion and veil of multiplicity, there is a unity or oneness, namely God. The world as we know it is, according to Rumi, like a shadow. But this isn't Gnosticism. Rumi is not a complete denier of the physical world. As we've seen, all of reality is pervaded by a kind of oneness or unity. The forms are the manifestations of the meaning. It is only our misunderstanding that creates trouble. Chiddick again says, quote, Form and meaning are inextricably connected. Form derives from meaning, and meaning manifests itself as form. Since the two are the outward and inward aspects of a single reality, each is important in its own way. But for most people, the danger lies in giving too much importance to form and not understanding that it derives its existence and significance from meaning. And this is where you find some of those similarities between Rumi and thinkers like Ibn Arabi, that the two seemingly hold what many would perceive as a kind of monistic worldview. 
Just like for Ibn Arabi, Rumi seems to imply that ultimately there is only God, and that all other things are a kind of illusion. At the core of reality is a unity or oneness hiding beneath the multiplicity of apparent existence or form. This kind of idea can be found all over Rumi's works, for example in the very opening section of the Masnavi, which says, quote, The lover is a veil, all is beloved. Beloved lives, the lover is a corpse. Or in the Divan, where he says, quote, My soul and yours have been essentially one, as well as my appearance and yours, and my hiddenness and yours. Only for the sake of others' understanding did I say mine and yours, since in reality there is no me and you in my interior and yours. We must be careful to not interpret these ideas as crude pantheism, though. There is always a clear distinction between God and creation in a sense, and Rumi, just like his fellow Sufis, are always very careful to not say that God is ever incarnated in the human being in any way, or that, the, that it is a situation where the two essences become one, the human and, and God, so to say. He makes this clear in one of the quatrains from the Divan, quote, As long as the servant of God does not become absolutely extinguished of self, the unity of God does not become verified by him. Unity is not the descent of God into you, it is you not being. For something false does not become true merely by idle boasting. Or in another quatrain, quote, Anyone who ties something untied into a knot laughs at his own condition and the condition of the world. They speak words about union and separation, yet how can something that was never separated be joined? But there is no denying, as is clear from these same verses, that there are many indications in Rumi's writings pointing to what we can semi-problematically refer to as a kind of monism. It doesn't help that many of the most major commentaries of the Masnavi were done from the perspective of Ibn Arabi's school, further of course solidifying that kind of interpretation of the poems, but Rumi was his own person, with unique ideas that he inherited from his Iranian form of Sufism, but there are clearly many parallels here too. Jalal ad-Din Muhammad al-Balkhi, known widely as Maulana Rumi, passed away in 1273 at just over 65 years old. His funeral was attended by scores of people in the city, not only fellow Muslims, but Christians and Jews, young and old, poor people and the political leaders, all of whom mourned the loss of a saint and spiritual giant that impacted just about everyone. The funeral prayers were led by another major Sufi figure, Sadruddin Qunawi, and eventually a major shrine was erected on the site of Rumi's burial, which still stands today as a centerpiece of the city of Konya. Clearly, by the time he died, Rumi was already a major figure in various respects, and he left behind a legacy of both students and devoted admirers, but also the massive output of poetry that we've already mentioned. Poetry that would still be read and admired around the world 800 years later. Even to this day, the anniversary of his death, what is known as the Shebi Aruz, which means the wedding night, is celebrated every year with a lot of people coming to Konya, to the Shrine of Rumi, to celebrate and, and do, listen to Sama and all these kinds of things. Um, in Sufism, so to explain this, this concept of the, the wedding night, in Sufism it is thought that at death, when someone dies, they are reunited with God. So death is seen as something very positive. It is, it is like, again, like the name suggests, like a wedding night. The urs, it is often called, when someone dies. It's that someone returns to God and is united with God, just like a bride and bridegroom would be united at, at their wedding. Uh, 
So every year, um, the death of Rumi is celebrated and, and he is remembered on this day, which since the uh, Gregorian calendar was, um, was implemented, is celebrated, I believe, on December 17th every year. And, and the center of these celebrations are, of course, in Konya, even today. The significant group of followers and students that he had established, his school of Sufism, so to say, was first led by Hossam ad-Din, the aforementioned disciple central to the composition of the Masnavi, but eventually leadership of the Brotherhood went to Rumi's son, Sultan Valad, who would become a key figure in the development of his father's community into a proper Sufi order. Sultan Valad wrote several important works himself, including poetry, but it must have been hard to sort of follow someone like Rumi and with that responsibility. Imagine having, imagine having Rumi as your father and then trying to pursue poetry. Uh, like, seems like a lot of pressure. In any case, it is in these succeeding years and decades after Maulana's death that we see the development of the Mevlevi Sufi order, based on Rumi's teachings and lineage, which is today famous around the world and has been one of the most influential Sufi orders in history. The Mevlevi order is very much based on the personality, teachings, and practices of Rumi. It emphasizes love as a key driving force and takes an approach to Sufism that is decidedly um, what we often call intoxicated or ecstatic. Rumi's poetry was and remains an important component of this tariqa, being recited regularly during ritual events and gatherings. Furthermore, Rumi's great love for music and sama that spiritual concert that we talked about, developed into a staple and cornerstone of the Mevlevi tradition. The way that Rumi and his disciples would perform the Sama with a whirling or spinning kind of dance or motion became an elaborate and highly ritualized practice in later centuries and is today famous as the so-called whirling dervishes. The dervishes whirl in a motion that reflects the motions of the planets, the, uh, the spinning motion which is a central motion of the entire universe and reality. One arm extended upwards and the other stretched outward to the side, representing a kind of reception and transmission, receiving the divine love and spreading it outwardly around you. This is at least one among many interpretations of the symbolism at play here. And on top of this, the Mevlevi order also, of course, involved more uh, standard aspects of Sufi practice, such as dhikr, for instance, particularly a form of dhikr where the name Allah is chanted over and over again, as well as things like retreats, uh, fasting, and other such techniques. The Mevlevi order eventually became one of the most, if not the most, powerful and popular Sufi order in the Ottoman Empire. Indeed, the order and its sheikhs and leaders often had close contact with the Ottoman sultans, who would sponsor the building of Mevlevi buildings and lodges. For example, the famous Ottoman sultan Suleiman the Magnificent was involved with the building of the Sama Hall in the great Mevlevi complex in Konya. The Mevleviya, together with the Naqshbandiya, were often seen as more orthodox Sufi orders that adhere to the principles of Islamic law, whereas other orders in the region were looked at with more uh, suspicion by the state, such as the Bektashi order, for example, whose status kind of wavered and varied with the times. But despite this great popularity and the general fame of Rumi as a poet and the spiritual master around the Islamic world, the Mevlevi order has remained mostly based in Anatolia. There have been significant communities in Damascus, uh, Jerusalem, and Tripoli in Lebanon, but the majority of Mevlevi activities have taken place in the heartlands of the Ottoman Empire. This status as a more orthodox Sufi order wasn't always obvious, though, as there have often been individuals and sheikhs that have taken a more antinomian path. The scholar Ahmed Kara Mustafa argues in his book God's Unruly Friends that there has always existed two strands or attitudes within the Mevlevi community, 
one that more closely adheres to the rules of the Sharia and the expectations of Muslim piety and behavior, the mainstream in other words, and another that is more antinomian and leaning towards uh, Malamati or Kalandari Sufism. The Malamatis, which literally means the people of blame or the blameworthy, is a certain strand or attitude within Sufism where one's inner spiritual state is hidden from the outside world, sometimes by acting in questionable ways that break social norms. The Qalandariya often represents the most extreme form of this tendency, with individuals that would consciously break all kinds of laws and norms. They would drink alcohol, urinate in public, they would shave off all their hair, including beard and eyebrows, and often they would wander around singing and dancing. All this had a spiritual purpose. It was a way of fighting the ego or self in the most extreme way by literally making other people despise you for your behavior a really fascinating group of mystics. And there have been certain Mevlevis in history, sometimes even prominent leader figures, that have leaned towards these kinds of movements and attitudes. With that said, the majority of Mevlevis and their general reputation has been quite the opposite. After the death of Rumi, the highest leadership of the order was carried on by his descendants. The first one was his son, Sultan Valad, as we saw, but this line has continued until this very day. The leaders of the Mevlevi order were given the title Chelebi, and it is the Chelebi that has the highest authority, being able to decide who is an official sheikh or master within the order. The current leader of the Mevlevis is Farouk Hamdam Chelebi. With that said, the organizational structure of the Mevlevis have altered significantly during the last century or so, even to some degree sort of falling apart in some ways. Um, while the Mevlevis, as we said, had a pretty good standing and a relationship with the Ottoman sultans during the Ottoman Empire, this would significantly change in the 20th century. When the Ottoman Empire fell apart and the Republic of Turkey was formed, there was a new attitude towards religion. Um, Turkey was to become a secular state, and there were many different processes that uh, that were set in motion to make Turkey secular. And Sufism in this new uh, in this new um, in this new Turkey was seen as old superstition, uh, these Sufi orders had way too much power, and so in 1925 Sufism and all its activities were officially forbidden in Turkey. So all the Mevlevi lodges were closed down, they were forbidden from performing their classic rituals like Sama and Zikr, and this still remains the rule to this day. This has had a significant impact on the order in the modern world, for obvious reasons. Um, like the, the, the Sama ritual, for instance, which has been such a central part of, of, of the order, uh, can be experienced today by tourists, but this is mostly because it has been constructed or, or it's, it's uh, painted as a cultural heritage, right? a cultural practice and not a religious ritual. This is why it has been allowed to continue in some fashion in Turkey today and can be experienced again, for example, by, by tourists. But the actual practices and, and the Mevlevi order as such has altered significantly and the hierarchical structure and, and the organizational structure of the, the order has, compared to earlier, kind of fallen apart. But the legacy of Jalal ad-Din Rumi and the Mevlevis live on around the world in different ways. Official sheikhs recognized by the Chelebi, such as Kabir Helminski in the US, keep the order alive, and of course, it is the poetry of Rumi that has taken the world by storm. Books of translation of Rumi's poems sell in numbers that other modern poets could only dream of. It really is an amazing development. 
But like we mentioned earlier, many of these popular translations often greatly alter the original meaning and flavor of Rumi's works. In particular, the Islamic character of the poetry is often removed completely. They can be read and enjoyed as poetry on its own, but not necessarily as always representing the thoughts and words of Rumi himself. On top of this, there is also a whole ocean of fake Rumi quotes out there. I would say that uh, a lot of, if not maybe even the majority of those famous quotes by Rumi that we see on Instagram or Twitter and all these other sites are either outright fake, like not being by Rumi at all, or they have been uh, significantly altered in their translation so that most people in the West especially have a kind of skewed image of Rumi and his actual teachings. For more quote-unquote accurate translations that stick more closely to the original Persian meanings, we have to turn elsewhere. There are many different translations of Rumi out there, and it can be hard to navigate where to turn and who to trust. If you want scholarly translations of his poetry, there are actually some great options out there. Uh, when it comes to the Masnavi, um, I would especially recommend the works of Nicholson, uh, Mojeddedi, and Alan Williams. Uh, the only Re like actual full translation of all the six books of, of Rumi, at, le at least like a scholarly translation, are those by Reynold A. Nicholson, which was written, I think was finished in 1940, or at least in the 1940s. Um, this still holds up, it's a good translation, although it, it does, it's kind of a dry translation. It has this sort of old style of language and it can be a little dry, although it sticks pretty closely to the original meanings, um, if that's what you're after. Uh, there is also a more recent translation by Jawad Mojeddedi, which is a beautiful poetic translation. So Mojeddedi has actually tried to mimic the rhyming and melody of the original Persian in a really beautiful way. So it's, it's a really aesthetically pleasing translation to read, although because of this uh, methodology, he has of course been forced to make some creative, um, take some creative liberties in order to make them rhyme and, and work in this way. But still, I would highly recommend this translation. It is accurate and it's really beautiful to read. Um, at the moment of, of recording this, uh, Mojeddedi has only only released the first five books out of six, uh, but hopefully the, the the last one should be coming out in the in the, in the coming years. And then lastly, the most recently um, started translation project of the Masnavi is that by Alan Williams, which is also highly recommended and really really beautiful. It does not have it does not take the uh, poetic. Uh, rhyming approach of Mojeddedi, instead sticking uh, closer to the original Persian and the, the, the word for word meanings, uh, but still being very aesthetically pleasing and beautiful to read. Um, so those, when it comes to, to the Masnavi, those are the translations that I would recommend. Um, Alan Williams's translation has only so far put out the first two books out of six, that is still, still also sort of work in progress, but um, very much looking forward to the rest of those coming out, and for now you can enjoy the first two books. Um, maybe that's a good thing, so you can sort of get a get a s slow start, take one thing at a time, because it is a it is a long work. As for Rumi's divan or collection of poems, the divani shams, things are more complicated. Uh, there is no full translation of the entire divan into English, but there are a few um, selections, uh, nice, sizable representations of some of the poems. The Quatrains of Rumi by Ibrahim Gemard and Rawan Farhadi is a translation of all the quatrains, or rubayat, from the divan in particular, and is highly recommended. 
For a selection of the Ghazals, you can consult Arthur John Arbery's works, particularly the two-volume collection Mystical Poems of Rumi, which include 400 of the Ghazals from the Divan. As for the prose works, in particular his discourses, or Fihi Ma Fihi, Arbery has also published a translation of this work under the title Discourses of Rumi. There is also a more recent and very competent translation of the same work by W. M. Thaxton, which is called Science of the Unseen, the Discourses of Rumi. So now you have a place to start, so you can hopefully too start to explore the wonderful masterpieces that are the many poems and, and works of Jalaluddin Rumi. We've seen that his life is a fascinating tale of love, war, conflict, and heartbreak, living through one of the most eventful periods in the history of the Middle East. We've explored the different aspects of his life that would have inspired and been a catalyst for his poetry and gotten to know him and those around him a little closer. Hopefully, this allows us to appreciate even more the absolutely awe-inspiring poetry that he has become so famous for. The Masnavi remains one of the most famous and revered works of literature in history, even, as we saw, being called the Qur'an in Persian and being appreciated by people from various backgrounds and spiritual leanings. Rumi left behind a legacy not just of poetry, but as a beacon of spiritual light in the world, one of the great mystics and luminaries in world history, who was beloved by Muslims as well as Christians and Jews for his openness and understanding, his kind nature, and the way that he was able to speak to the common man and convey the most lofty spiritual ideals. It is therefore not surprising that he's just as relevant today as he has ever been, and that his poems in different forms reach people on different continents and over a time span of almost a millennium. Through him, the wailing lament of the Ney can still be heard around the world. I'll see you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.